Well, hello and welcome to the Preaching While Black podcast, a podcast powered by the Invisible Institute. This podcast is dedicated or committed to the content, craft, and call of the Black preaching tradition. And I got a very special guest with me today, Dr. George Parks. He's one of my favorite expositors, actually. I haven't told him that before, but I told him on this episode. I'm humble. And I'm Thank you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Parks. You definitely don't want to miss it, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Preaching While Black podcast, a podcast dedicated to the calling, craft, and content of the Black preaching tradition. And now, here's your host, John C. Richards, Jr. Reverend Dr. Parks. Welcome to the Preaching Wild Black Podcast. Good to have you, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. So let's talk a little bit about the beginning of who Dr. Parks is. We see this polished preacher uh, preaching in North Little Rock at New Hope. And uh, I want to talk about the beginning of your call, though. Uh, I'll give the people a little bit about your background. Just kind of let folks know uh, where you come from. So you're from Cleveland. Actually found that out. I didn't know you grew up in Cleveland. And you wound up in Little Rock somehow. But before then, you went to American Baptist. American Baptist College, Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee. And then you went and got your MDiv for one of the greatest schools on the planet. The real HU. The real HU. We had Seth on before, and he was talking about that other school. Oh, he he doesn't know any better. (laughs) He's a lad of a boy. (laughs) So you got an MDiv from Howard University and then went on to get a D-Min from Union. Now, your D-Min is actually in preaching and homiletics, right? Expository preaching. Expository preaching. So talk to me a little bit about why you decided to go the D-Min route and then get one in expository preaching. We have to remember, I started preaching in 1998. So that's 25 years this coming March. So there was a real push around biblical preaching. We kind of didn't know it for, in my area, what expository necessarily was. So my dad had always uh, put inside of me this need to be biblical, this real, real deep need to be biblical. And I, I found, discovered this idea of expository preaching through hearing preachers of the like of uh, Stephen Olford, Maurice Watson, and uh, I, I developed a love for it. I ended up doing my demon expository preaching. The real intent was to do my project on expository prophetic preaching. Most people hmm. don't know that hmm. uh, because my challenge with so much of prophetic preaching, in my estimation, then it was not always rooted biblically or expository, which I've expanded a great deal on that, but I thought that was a niche that no one was kind of yeah. really doing, being deeply biblical and socially. You're saying it was spooky, spooky prophetic preaching. I wouldn't say that, but no, <laughs> probably that's probably what I said then. <laughs> yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, your initial call though, because you were called to ministry in 1990s, 98 1998. And you grew up, though, as a preacher's kid. 
and seeing your father preach on a regular basis. So what was it that initiated for you that call, that sense that you were called to ministry? I was a church boy. I always loved the church, uh, had a deep affinity for the church. However, I was a PK and I witnessed my father go through probably one of the worst church fights any preacher could go through. Hmm. I'd never get riding in the car when my dad had received this piece of certified mail from a set of deacons and a member uh, asking, saying, we put you out. Mm. It was illegal and all that good stuff, but just how it panned out. So then that's where I kind of started. I'm 11, 12. I'm like, I'm turning my back on the church. I'm I'm making up my mind. I'm going to be a corporate lawyer. I'm going to be rich. But then... Uh, kind of in the words of William Myers' book, uh, had this irresistible urge, always loved preaching the church, the institution. So uh, very much sheltered. Yeah. Grew up in Cleveland Heights, just a church boy. And I always tell people, uh, I don't say this proudly, but everything I did, I did it in church because all I know is the church. So my whole maturation was uh, in church as a person and as a minister. So accepted my call, talked to my dad. Mm. I started preaching when I was 14. Wow. Which was unique. All my friends really embraced it. They were really happy. Friends in school right. and in uh, in church. I've always struggled probably inwardly as a person, as a young adult, of how people will receive me. Mm. Uh, I always kind of had challenges inwardly, yeah. preaching in front of family, uh, because you, you always want people to accept you as a person and not as a thing. Yeah, you do. So yeah. so, the, so that was unique. But 1990 was a great year. Church was still church, afternoon mm -hmm. services. So I, <laughs> the Lord blessed me with a whole lot of practice. Usher's mm -hmm. Day, mm -hmm. preaching for the Masonic Lodge, the Eastern Stars. So all of those things were maturation opportunities for me. Mm -hmm. I think people sometimes see the finish or a finishing product. I yeah. wouldn't say finish, a finishing product. But those are the experiences and the opportunities that kind of shape. So you appreciate those small opportunities? Absolutely. I tell people, if you can't preach in a small context, you're not ready to preach anywhere mm. else. Mm. So let me tell me this. You're sitting in the pew, and you're watching young George Parks preach his first sermon in 1998. Oh, gosh. What are you saying to that young man once he's done, if he's asking you for it, for your advice? Develop inwardly and develop in all areas as a person. I think the only challenge for young preachers is you are novelty and you can have an amazing gift but fail to develop as a person. Mm. So you often, we often see, and not to be, you know, so somber, we often see great young preachers that have great gifts but they haven't developed as persons. They don't know any kind of life outside a pulpit. Right. And then, because there's such a novelty, it becomes a thing. Yeah. And if you're not careful, you'll go into exhibitionist preaching instead of being transformational. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So when did you come to that realization, though? After preaching your first sermon, after several other sermons, you're like, man, I really need to develop me. I mean, it seems like I have the gift, but I really need to go through some self-development myself. I would say college. When I, when I went to college. Hmm. I mean, when you're 14, 15, everybody's calling you. I mean, my dad instilled it into me. I never get the 
the tough conversations as a young preacher, he, he would say it plainly. Hey, you only spend 30 minutes in the pulpit. If that long, mm. what type of person are you going to be? So it was hard saying. I didn't realize all the implications of it until I started going to school and being forced to think uh, about life huh. Huh. outside of the pulpit. Mm. So as a son of a preacher, man, and we're talking about your call, what type of impact did having your dad as a preacher, like how did that impact your call to ministry? Or was that, did you feel like there was more weight that's there because your dad was a pastor? No, no, my dad never pushed that, mm -hmm. insinuated. Uh, I do say the benefits, you know, did you play sports? Of and course I, I did. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm messing with you. I don't they, look like I played sports. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> But you just think about the kid who their first sports coach. Yeah. That's hard on them. That's how I view my dad as a pastor. Mm. He was a coach. Like, this is real life. This is what you have to do. If you say God called you, this is what's required. However, the danger of that is when you become a pastor, you think you can do that with everybody and everybody can't take <laughs> that. So we are we are a total sum of our experiences. So mm. that was my experience. My dad was a tough coach. Mm. Mm. He was a tough coach. So talk to me a little bit more about that call that you feel. Uh, you know, when people are called, they're either called running away or they're called leaning into the ministry. Do you feel like when God called you, you were like, no, nah, this ain't what I wanted to do? Or you, you felt like there was... That, uh, uh, that William Myers book is old. I would, uh, before we had all these other call books, he was one of the first, he's a New Testament scholar, uh, Ashland Theological, Irresistible Urge. So I would connect my call to that phrase and Jeremiah's call in one, mm -hmm. Jeremiah chapter one. You gotta remember Jeremiah's between the ages of 13 and 16 years old. Yeah. And the Lord says, I put my word in your mouth mm -hmm. and I'm gonna send you before nations You've got to remember Jeremiah's ministry was not as sexy as we think it is. No. He says to tear down, pluck up, mm -hmm. speak to. Uh, Brueggemann does a great treatment on those things that God calls him to do. Mm -hmm. And then also when we look at Jeremiah's ministry as he goes on, he speaks to all these nations, then he gets upset. Huh. And then much of the duress of Jer in Jeremiah's ministry we always talk about fire shut up in my bones. Yeah. But he was attacked by his own colleagues. Yeah. yeah. To be a serious minister, sometimes you will not be widely accepted by colleagues, majority culture. Yeah. And Jeremiah says, hey, I've had enough of this. Yeah, if you read Jeremiah, that's not a strategic plan for church growth. Not at all. Prophetic ministry doesn't say that I'm trying to Jeremiah's the crazy preacher on the corner. Everybody say, you know Reverend That's crazy. He's exactly lost Exactly what yeah. he is. Yeah, he's that guy. He's that guy. <laughs> so we've talked about your your call. Um, after the break, we're going to talk about the craft of your sermon preparation and talk about how you put together your messages. Okay. I'm looking forward to Look that. Look forward to it. Scholars have referred to the original black church as the invisible institution because enslaved people were often not allowed to worship freely. They'd have to gather, sing, and preach in secret to avoid being beat. Yet they still developed a deep devotion to the authority of scripture and the liberation narrative. Today, many Christians who don't fully agree with conservatives or progressives feel invisible. They're not well represented in politics or mainstream media. 
In response, the AIN campaign has created the Invisible Institution Newsletter, or IVI. We'll be providing political commentary, policy breakdowns, and more for Christians who believe in social justice and moral order, not one or the other. Go to AINCampaign.org and subscribe if you're sick and tired of feeling invisible. So let's, let's dig into your process. Let's talk about the craft of preaching. I know a lot of preachers just wait for this segment. They don't, <laughs> they don't care about the call. They want to talk about how you approach uh, sermon preparation. And I'm just going to start just by asking you, manuscript or outline? Manuscript. Manuscript preacher. So let's talk about how well, you... Well, I write a manuscript. I don't always use it. Don't always use it. Because I've watched a few sermons. I'm like, that don't look like you manuscript preacher. <laughs> so talk to me about... You bring it into the pulpit, but but how do you approach manuscript preaching? Because when people hear that, they see, okay, all your words are on the page, but we don't see that necessarily come from the pulpit from you. So what does that look like for you in terms of coming up on Sunday morning? How do you use your manuscript? How do I use the manuscript? Mm -hmm. Well, I write a full manuscript, top to bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm not using it, I'm always, I would, before I would call it memorization, mm -hmm. However, the pandemic reminded me that it was not memorization, it was just internalization. Mm. Uh, so I would internalize it when, I, when I'm having a good week, I'm internalizing uh, on Saturday mm -hmm. and I'm reading over it three times Sunday morning. Mm. And there's oftentimes I'm, I may be what I call my cheat sheet. Mm. So my cheat sheet may be an outline or my cheat sheet may be an eight and a half by 11. Introduction on the first page, Shorthand, first point, mm -hmm. second point, back page, third point, and conclusion. Mm -hmm. So you go front and back on those pages, and they're right. actually folded in half. Paper. Yeah. Actual yeah. paper. Okay. <laughs> paper. That's no, that, 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 is, that is not to say Ooh. because I'm listen, we've talked a couple of John times. John has roasted me, people. <laughs> he roasted me. No, it's not typed out. It's not in sub. It is handwritten. Okay. Um, on. Photo paper. Listen, there are a lot of preachers who are saying a hearty amen. I just interviewed Seth Martin, and he's a, he said he uses paper all the time and sticky notes. So I'm Yo, not whatever. Listen, I'm not against paper. Okay, I'm a, I'm a digital guy. <laughs> I'm feeling bad. Oh, my sanctification's out there. Which I said whatever. I'm sorry, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, talk to me about your turn phrases, though, because there are things that you you hit in the sermon that I feel like are phrases that you want to make sure you get out, or statements you want to get out to the folks. How do you make sure you get those in in your sermon? I think if you're writing, you know what you write. Mm. And you know what the high points are. So I I still, it's probably old, I still do quotes. Mm. I don't think we read wide enough. Uh, quotes go a long way. Poetry, bringing the other disciplines into preaching. Because mm. I believe, especially the African-American pulpit, is also a place of spiritual life, but it's also exposure. So we should be exposing our people to the sciences, what's happening on Wall Street, what's happening on their street. So I think all of those things come into play to make a good sermon. So that's how you kind of lay it out there. So let's talk a little bit more about your craft and talk about what you use in your process. Well, so if you could give folks, hey, these are my three go-to resources every time I 
decide I'm going to prepare a sermon. I know the text that I'm going to approach. What type of resources do you turn to as like your three primary resources? Believe it or not, these are very known Bible knowledge commentary, mm -hmm. two volume, a good Bible handbook, Unger's Bible handbook. And the last one is probably typically always some type of lay commentary, mm -hmm. right where people can get it, a J. Vernon McKee, a child. Is it John Barclay? William Barclay. William Barclay. Those mm -hmm. types of things where no matter how lofty the text is, mm -hmm. where I'm finding a way to get into the language of the people. Mm -hmm. But my overall approach is commentaries. I'm very much highly interpretive in preaching. So my approach is kind of like a Dr. Gregory or someone. I'm always looking at and I've added I uh, kind of do like the five approach, your lay commentary, mm -hmm. uh, your commentary of fact, mm -hmm. a heavyweight commentary, mm -hmm. a homiletical commentary, and a devotional. Mm -hmm. So let's say I'm preaching through a book. I'm going to have those five type of resources mm -hmm. going at all times. And just looking at all five of those. Okay. okay. So I want to look at it devotionally. What What does a simple, what is the heart of this passage? Mm. Technical. Mm. Let's get behind it. Yeah. Homiletical, who has preached on it. Mm. Lay commentary, and then just commentary that just gives me the facts. Mm. Like Columbo, the facts are just the facts. Yeah. yeah. So how do you avoid bringing everything that you learn in the study? Because when we're in the study, studying a text, we're like, ooh, that's good. But then we're like, man, we only got 25 minutes, 30 minutes. It depends on what our tech team tells us, right? Mm -hmm. So if we got that much time, how do we, how do you cut back on what, seems like it's good material, but you know it's not meat for your people or the congregation. Do you have to know people's attention is not that long? You mm. have the greatest sermon, unless you have this grand oratorical gift. And you do have some individuals like that that can just hold people's attention. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Pointer is one of those. Uh, but if aimed for the point, mm. if it doesn't really highlight that point, I leave it. Mm. And part of it, I'm going through a process when I'm reading the text, I'm reading my commentaries, I have a, a worksheet. Mm -hmm. So really once I fill that worksheet, I know I have more than enough stuff. In order to get through it. To get through it. Wow. Okay. I know there's some people there, we want that worksheet. Hey, you could have it. Just call the <laughs> church. You could have it. It's simple. Get that template. It's so old. So tell me a little bit about, when you talk about the craft of preaching, tell me about the stuff that you retain. How are you able to retain the information for next time when you're preaching. Do you have a system where you make sure that you keep your notes or how do you? I'm terrible with the system. I thought I'd do. Uh, but I keep exegetical worksheets. Mm. And what we're doing right now is we're uh, cataloging them by books of the Bible. Mm. So sometimes if I know I've done some decent work on Psalms, I can always go back because mm -hmm. the contextual work does not Don't really change. change. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, you're putting those together just kind of internally as a church and you're able to use that? Well, no, personally. Just personally? They're on worksheets. Oh, okay. So what I've read, and then we just put them in a, a, a notebook. I'm ashamed <laughs> to say a notebook. <laughs> so tell me about writing um, mm -hmm. because you manuscript do manuscript preaching, have you thought about writing longer form or writing in the book format for publishing, or have you published anything? I have published a, a few things, uh, some articles, mm -hmm. 
uh, the narrative that fails that's on Southwestern seminaries, their website. Mm -hmm. I wrote the book, uh, God finding God's purpose on the life of Samson mm -hmm. Mount meditations, which is a devotional book. And I was a contributor to the book, say it celebrating, mm -hmm. uh, the art of black expository preaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right, I think when we're preaching, we ought to write for the ear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we want to raise the language, but still keep the language in the uh, in the vernacular of the people. Uh, I think preaching should be like kind of like poetry. Mm -hmm. I think it's something in the oral tradition of preaching, if we're truly sermonizing. Yeah, and I may get into some hot water. I think a lot of stuff that we hear on Sunday morning is not good sermonizing. Uh, but to sermonize every week, that mm -hmm. takes intentionality. Yeah. So you have to look at how am I getting in? Mm. What's my transitions? Mm. How do I illustrate? That's true sermonizing. Sometimes we get up with a lot of notes, but it's not a good sermon. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned about talking about themes, and I want to talk about Christ-centered preaching. I know that's a theme that's been a theme for like past 10, 12 years for a lot mm -hmm. of folks. But how do you, as you're working through your sermon and crafting your sermon, um, how do you get to that moment in the sermon, which usually for most people is at the end where you're actually pointing people where the message should point them? How do you get to that in the study? And then how do you bring that to the pulpit? I'm terrible at that. Uh, I realized that in reflection, I, I did a, uh, a uh, workshop on it at E.K. Bailey. Farce putting Christ as the crescendo. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that's that's good if you're good at it. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find Christ within the passage. And that's not always at the end. Sometimes that's in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll go with sometimes a more natural, organic. But the, the danger of preaching, and sometimes endeavoring to be expository, you can get the text right and not expose Christ. Jeez. That's it. That's good. And that's, and that's what we have to always go back and determine. Do we have a good exegetical paper? Do we have a message? Mm. So you can get all of the text right and fail to fail to disclose Jesus. Mm. And that's really hard for a lot of seminary trained folks because they got all those tools. Got all these tools. And they want to bring them in the pulpit and you like using the scalpel with the text and don't ever get to the cross. And I think that's a reminder for us to preach with our hearts. Mm. And get in the pews with the people. That's good. Yeah. So we've talked about the craft of your sermons. When we come back, I really want to talk with you about the content of your sermons and specifically social location, um, where you find yourself now as a preacher. So looking forward to it. What's up, Preaching Wild Black fam? Listen, I hope this interview has been a blessing so far. If you want more content and resources around Preaching Wild Black, go over to our YouTube channel, Preaching Wild Black. We have all the episodes from our interviews up, but we also have other resources for you as a black preacher as you try to hone your craft, your call, and your content for black preaching. Now back to our episode. All right, let's talk about the content of your preaching because you're from Cleveland. We established that. I am indeed. That, and you find yourself in North Little Rock, Arkansas. North Little Rock in Conway, Arkansas. And you were called to pastor New Hope in North Little Rock, 
What year was that? 2015. 2015. So never been to Little Rock before then, Arkansas before then? Not really. I was, I had preached for mm-hmm. a few gentlemen. I preached at New Hope mm-hmm. for the former pastor, Carlos Kelly. And uh, I was just so happy that Dr. Pointer was two hours from Memphis. Mm-hmm. I would have never dreamed that I'd be living in Little Rock. So that's, that's really says something about culture, though, because you're coming from a culture in Cleveland that is a little bit different from the culture here in Little Rock. How did you, as a new preacher in a new context, how did you learn your social context, learn the new social context? It was probably brutal. Hmm. 2015, you know, life was starting to change. A lot of social issues were on the table. Yeah. So I'm preaching to those matters and I'm preaching to what's going on in the world to a church that has a great biblical fidelity, but maybe they weren't as socially as astute as I thought they were. And so some people I was labeled as not preaching the Bible. Wow. So you think about how you struggle inwardly with that. You know that these are major challenges. Yeah. And And this is a majority black church. Yes. Yeah. So okay. I think that's a challenge because I think we've always, we tend, especially African-Americans in the South, we tend to get all of our cues of what healthy Christianity is, is from majority culture. Mm-hmm. And we think if we're practicing the way, that's the way. And um, I'm not totally convinced on that, mm-hmm. especially how in times past where we've seen certain cultures have exploited the gospel mm-hmm. for political gain. Yeah. And uh, so, but now it's funny, you know, when things happen, uh, members are like, Where we, we waiting to hear what the Lord going to say to you about this. <laughs> they're right, they're it's right like, now. What? <laughs> so, so I, th- I, th- I think it was a great learning curve. Mm. You want to learn where your people are, you want to preach to those needs. Mm-hmm. And I think part of good preaching is helping or assisting the congregation to think theologically about the world that they live in. Mm-hmm. And that is uncomfortable preaching, and that is not sexy preaching, but that is needed because people come to the pew with these questions, and if we just simply do Bible book reporting, that's not preaching, that's not transformation. Mm -hmm. So there's some people in this world who see multi-site churches in the white context, and they're like, this is normal. But I would posit that it's not absolutely normal in the black church space. It is not. But... New Hope in New Little, in North Little Rock has a multi-site. We're in Conway. A couple of campuses, right? What is it like as a black pastor doing multiple campuses or preaching multiple campuses? As a black pastor, it is stretching. Mm. Most times as black pastors, we don't have the extra tools and the stand for that. That's it. So yeah. we have multi-site, but they still expect their, they want to touch their pastor. They want to hear from their pastor. They expect their pastor to be at the bedside. And those are cultural norms. But it is fun preaching at our Conway campus. They get it. It's a different type of preaching. Uh, I'm preaching to upwardly mobile African-Americans, a lot of professors, business owners, so how they process and hear the gospel. It's a little bit different. You said something really important, though, in terms of resources, because when you think about multi-site, especially in in the majority context, you have tech teams on every campus and you have people who are in different roles on each campus. But in black church culture, 
is one team probably doing all of that. Um, and like you said, it really is stretching, but it also shows how we're resource strapped. But that's one of the things about the black church that's been the beauty of the black church is that oh, we've yes. always taken that was little and made a bunch out of it. Like we take the castaway collard greens and yeah. make it a whole meal. Absolutely. So as a pastor though, how do you make sure even in that stretch period that your people feel valued in those moments? I think it's nothing like being a shepherd, hmm. touching your people, calling your people. I think for the average size church, the pastor still needs to do that. Uh -huh. When people feel touched and feel loved, that's the element of being a shepherd. You can be a great sermonizer, but if no one feels like that they that you love them, they're not hearing what you're saying. And uh, and those are things we, we we are strapped far as resources most, but that's the miracle of the black church. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think of the average net worth of most black people, seventeen thousand uh, dollars. Some some say it's twenty one, and then the net worth of the average majority culture is a hundred plus thousand. Mm -hmm. And to see what the African American church is able to do week in and week out, mm -hmm. that's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. It is. I mean, that's a miracle. Yeah. What each church does week in, week out, black church, it's, it's a miracle. And I think sometimes we need to remind our people, you know, that we, we are working with fragments, but God keeps giving us baskets left over some way, somehow. Mm, that's good. So let's do a bit of a rapid fire here. Cool. Team Paul, Team Barnabas. Paul. Why? Because he was a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't like to be the encourager. You're not going to take No, John, I'm not, not that. I, I, I leave that to other people. I'll be still ticked <laughs> off. Man, you left me. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll be upset with John Mark. Okay, favorite gospel? Mark's gospel. Why? Because it's the first gospel and it has the most resources. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying that's to preach. That's a very preacher thing. <laughs> that's to a preacher thing. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah mm. I identified with him as a young preacher mm. and you mentioned that earlier because mm. he was called called young yeah Jeremiah okay uh, and I like Brugman's commentary on Jeremiah <laughs> another commentary we're going to drop so, all these commentaries so rigid. in the comments it's so rigid <laughs> so cliche so when you think about first century churches and you like Paul so the the the, the churches that Paul wrote to your favorite church? Corinth. Why? Because they were twisted. <laughs> so it wasn't the Philippian, it wasn't the Philippi, church at Philippi? I mean, I think that was great, but I think Paul writing to the church at Corinth mm. reminds us of the heavy pastoral work that has to be done. Yeah. If we're not careful, every preacher spends so much of their ministry looking for the perfect church. Mm -hmm. And God does not send preachers to perfect situations. Mm -hmm. I was just messing with you earlier. I know, I know Paul was pastoral, okay? Even though he didn't want to take John Mark, <laughs> he did write all these pastoral letters. But this has been a very rich conversation, man. I appreciate oh, thank you, you, John, so much for having me. For joining me, man. And I'm not going to talk about the paper that you have. I know I'm digital, but we're we not going to do that. John, you're going to shame me on the World Wide Web. <laughs> Lord help. But this has been Dr. George Parks. He's joined us for this episode. We're grateful for his ministry. I do pray for fruitful ministry for you as a multi-site campus Thank you. Um, pastor and I think that that's amazing especially in the black church space so 
continue prayers for you for that. John, thank you. And we wish you God's richest blessings in this endeavor. Appreciate you. You're a great gift to the body of Christ. Thanks, man. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Preaching Wild Black podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Make sure you follow us on all social media platforms. We're in all of them. And make sure you follow the podcast on all podcasting platforms and go over to our YouTube channel. All of our podcasts appear over on the YouTube channel. We have video and audio. So however you want it, we got it. And we also going to keep all of our resources down in our comment section. He gave you all a lot of resources in this episode. You can tell he's a preacher because he's naming all these commentaries. And now I got on the other end of that. Put all those resources down in the description. But we got you. We got you back. Appreciate you all for joining us. We'll see y'all on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Preaching While Black podcast. For more helpful content and resources, connect with us online at preachingwhileblack.com.